Dear Lord God, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to come together and learn a little bit more of the wonders that you have created that seem to fly under the radar sometimes, but at this conference they're pretty, pretty well lit up. But Lord, give us wisdom and understanding and, and uh, to, to appreciate everything that you do. Amen. My name is Dan Hutton, and I, I take care of a ranch, and I have a garden, and so I know a little bit about gardening. Last year, I went to the, the agriculture conference they had in Tennessee. Same, same thing, but it was in Tennessee, and I met several people, and I learned different things that um, I, had, I had never... I didn't know much about. And um, this is my partner in crime, Tom. We're, we're sort of tag teaming. He, I helped him with the, the Mrs. White method of planting trees, and he's actually better at this presentation than I am, but we're trading off. <laughs> anyway. Um, went to this conference. Well, first off, what, when you think of food and you think, what can I do to make this food taste better? What, what do you add to food to make it taste better? Ketchup. Ketchup? Good. Ketchup's good. Well, but what, what else? Salt. Okay. What else? Herbs. Okay. Good. Oil. Okay. What else? Sugar, okay. So we're going to talk about one of those things that what our bodies like is salt. We like salt, and we're going to talk about this, the, what, how that affects the plants. And the other thing that I learned at the conference last year, and I'm just going to barely touch on this, that sugar which we like, we love, is also good for plants. And, and when, you, when you make, okay, do people know what molasses is? What is molasses? Okay, what is it? What about the sugar cane? Is molasses. Okay, this is correct. When they make sugar, they take the beets or the cane or the sorghum or whatever they're using and they beat it up and they take off the liquid and then they refine it and they refine it and they end up with white powder or white crystals. And that's not meth, I mean Coke. <laughs> but they end up with white powder that we eat as, as white sugar, and everything else that they refined off of the liquid, it becomes molasses. They take all the good out, and they leave, and we get all the bad, and the, the good is in the molasses. It has, it's high in all the nutrients, or most all the nutrients, and it's very good, and when you put it on the soil, 
when you're adding um, uh, the, the, you have micro life, you take a soil sample, and you determine I need to add this element and I need to add this element and I need to add this element and then you add micro life, Z-hume or humate or various kinds of humic acids and other forms of microlife, and you add either sugar or molasses, that um, the molasses is food for the microlife, and the microlife then eats on those um, nutrients and makes the nutrients available to the, to the plant. So if you feed the microlife, it feeds the plant. And it's amazing what sugar will do. Now, that's just a little introduction to the subject. There's a lot more to it, and, and we're not going to go, unless you have questions, we'll touch on it more. Okay, the other thing is salt. Um, in the 1930s, there was a, a fellow by the name of Maynard Murray. And Maynard Murray was a physician in Boston. And he uh, enjoyed going down to the docks, and he would watch when the ships would come in, and they'd unload their cargo, and he'd see the creatures that they'd bring in. And he was noticing that they didn't have the diseases that he was seeing in the hospital. He would see all the different kinds of diseases people get, and he would look at the sea creatures, and they weren't getting those diseases. And he was putting things together in his mind that something's going on here. I want to learn more. So since he was a physician, he hired himself on as a ship's mortician. And he went all around the world on a, a seven, eight months, and they'd bring creatures in, and he'd cut them open and look for diseases, and he didn't find any. And one of the things that they did, uh, which totally incomprehensible in our time, but it was common back then, is they'd, they'd catch whales. And whales, whales. And so they brought on a whale and a baby, a mother and baby. And he cut them open and went looking for any problems or diseases or anything. And the baby was about a year and a half old, and the mother, it was guessed, was approximately 80, 80 years old. And he was comparing the flesh of the baby and the mother, and there was no difference. There was no sign of aging in the mother's tissues. It was like you, you don't get older, you just get bigger. And uh, he was pretty impressed with that. So they did... They tested the sea seawater and they found out that there are more than 90 different elements in, in the water and they are in a precise balance. And if you go, what I understand, I'm not a, okay, first off, I'm not a chemist, so I don't know all the chemical interactions of the different things. I know what I've been taught and I know what I've experienced, so, but, so, but I'm not a chemist. But they say that there's a precise uh, balance 
and you go anywhere in the world um, and you find the same balance in the ocean, not in bays, not in river inlets or outlets, or, but in the, in the big ocean, you find pretty much the same balance wherever. And as you know, all over the world, you have things high and the water takes it and takes it and takes it and every, everything eventually ends up in the ocean. The elements, whatever was on top of the mountain ends up in the ocean. And then when it's in the ocean, the ocean goes swish, swash, swish, swash, swish, swash, all day long and all night long. And the things that God created a balance for the ocean, which is very close to the same balance that we have in our tissues. In our, our fluids, our blood and the, the other body tissue, uh, fluids have just about the same balance as the ocean water. And that is also just about the same balance as the plant sap. And so if you, if you're, if you take the elements from the ocean, to, now, you, there's a point, and this is important, if you go and drink ocean water, you will not do well. But if you dilute it 10 to 1, half gallon to 5 gallons, well, that's a lot of water, but um, that, that is the same um, ratio that, that is in our body. Is that when you, it's diluted approximately 10 to 1. Am I on close? Am I on close? So, Lynn, Lynn tells a story. Okay, they, we've got, the water is good for us. Lynn tells a story that he had a, a peach tree. And Tom tells a very similar story. And he put, in this peach tree, had peach leaf curl. Does everybody know what peach leaf curl is or does? No? Okay, you were going to, okay, explain. And what does it do? It, it will kill a tree if left untreated. And it, in a severe case, it will kill the tree. Um, so Lynn took one ounce of sea mineral, sea salt. Sea mineral, sea salt, sea solids, those are interchangeable terms. And he dissolved that in hot water, warm water, and then he slushed it all over the tree. And then he did that two more times over a period of time. So after three times, all the, the curly leaf fell off the tree and new leaves came on and it grew really well. And then when the tree was ready to produce fruit, the fruit was spectacular. It was very, very tasty. And he thought, wow, there must be a connection here. The next spring, there was no peach leaf curl. So he didn't add any more salt to the, to the trees. And after the, um, when the peaches were ready to harvest, they weren't as tasty as they'd been the year before. They were average peaches. And so he concluded that there was a direct connection between the flavor of 
the fruit and, and the salt, the, the sea salt and all the micronutrients that's in them. So I was, I, I was working with him this year. Uh, I met him last year. I flew all the way to Tennessee from California and I met somebody who lived an hour and a half from me and I became good friends with him. And so back in California, we communicate all the time. And so I call him as I said, I have a problem with fire blight. Do you know what fire blight is on, peach, on apples and pears? What is fire blight? That's correct. It looks like a blowtorch was gone up the or down the tree and the leaves stay there and they're black and it, it'll eventually, you'll take off this limb and that limb and then it's gone. And you are correct. And it's a nasty disease. And they say when you have it to, it works from the top down. They say go under and cut it out and take that and burn it so that you, you don't have it around. Well, I, and when you do it, you, when you take your lopper, your pruners, and you take off each branch or each stem, whatever you're cutting, then you dip it in a, a sanitizing thing. I use bleach water, uh, chlorine, chlorine water, and I dip it, and then the next cut, and then dip it, and then the next cut. It's quite tedious, especially if you're on a ladder. And, and I, I wasn't having any success with this um, fire blight, and so I asked Len, I said, should I use the sea salt? And he said, yes, but, sea, but, but fire blight is tougher than, than leaf, peach leaf curl. He said, you're going to need to use more, double the rate. And so I did. And I, I, used, I, I have a, a little jar. It's a hose-in sprayer. And you hook it up the hose, and you spray it wherever. And, I, and you put in a solution of whatever you have. And in this case, it was brine sea salt water and I sprayed that over the tree and and then up and over and um, I did a pretty thorough job and, I, and there was a number of trees and I did it every two weeks four times so I did it four times for, and every two weeks and at the end it still had fire blight and I was saying this isn't working. This is not, this is, this is not, uh, I'm not so happy with this. I was disappointed. And, and then I started, the, the tree didn't die. They were just had the fire blight and they still had fruit. And um, the first tree to come off was an apple. And the last several times, that, the last time I got apples off the tree, they were, Pretty, pretty tasteless, and, and they made a, a really crummy applesauce, and they stayed in the cupboard a long time because I didn't want to eat them. So I, I tasted it, and I was saying, wow, this is, this is pretty tasty. So I learned about a refractometer last year. And a refractometer is this little device. It's, a, it's like a binoculars with a prism on it. And so I took the juice from the apple 
put it on here. Um, and I, I looked at it. And the apples that I had the year before were, uh, the, the last one, that the apples weren't hardly worth eating. This time, well, an apple at, according to Tom's paper here, apples are poor at six, average at 10, um, 14 is good, and 18 is excellent. And this apple tree that had had these crummy apples before, instead of being 18 and excellent, it was 20. And the only thing different was the sea salt. I hadn't done anything else to these plants. And I wanted to bring something, so I brought some dried apples. If you want to pass them around and try them, um, these are off of that tree. And just be warned, to keep them from turning brown, I put a little bit of um, lemon on them. So you will taste the lemon. But um, I think they turned out pretty good. Um, and so then the next, the next tree to come off was a pear that I treated for this fire blight. And see if we can find that on here. Pears are considered excellent at 14. And mine was 20. And I shared them with the lady there at the ranch. And she said, these are decadent. These are wonderful. And I was of the same opinion. So then the third tree was another apple tree. And this apple tree was old when I went to the ranch 25 years ago. And I had tried to revive it and tried to get it to produce well. And, and it, it just was, it was like one of those trees that you never know why they planted it because it wasn't. You couldn't make it into anything good. The juice was poor. The applesauce was not hardly edible. The, it, it, um, it did make good dried apples. And so that's why I kept it, because it made good dried apples, if you could keep the worms out of it. Well, this year, in, instead of being um, 18, it was 22. And it made fantastic juice, where in the past, the juice had never been even drinkable. So I was getting kind of, I thought this is pretty neat. Well, this, this past year in working with, with Lynn, he has a total program that he works with through International Ag Labs. And I had followed this program and my soil when I started was out of balance. And he said, this first year, it's not you're going to, with following this program, you're going to get pretty good yield. It's going to be better, but it's not going to be perfect because your soil is still, was so far out of balance, it's not going to be balanced all the way this first year. But you're, you're going to get good yield, but your bricks level is not going to be that wonderful. And bricks 
BRIX is the, the numbers that they, the, the it's what they use to measure what this refractometer measures are bricks. And it's the measurement of sugar and minerals in the sap. And so the higher the, the, the and every, all the different, according to this chart, different plants have different levels, different, different things are excellent and different things are poor across the whole spectrum. Some things are sweeter foods than others. Uh, watermelons, well, grapes. grapes are very sweet and, and the, most of the greens are not very sweet. And, and it ranges, everything is different. So you have to individually check everything. Well, I was, I was getting through the, the season this summer and I was, I, was, um, I was quite pleased with how things were going and so I called up Len and I told him, you told me that I wasn't going to, that I was going to get good yields, but I wasn't going to necessarily get high BRICS levels. And I said, these are the BRICS levels that I'm getting. I can't wait to see what I'm getting in the future. And he kind of chuckled. And a couple weeks later, he said, he called up and said, uh, Friday afternoon, I'm doing a garden presentation in this little tiny town in the Central Valley called Raymond. Arlene, do you know where Raymond is? I figured you would. And um, so he said, can you bring some of your produce up to the, my de garden demonstration? And I said, okay. And so I drove up Sunday morning and on the way I picked up uh, my professor from, from college. I, I studied agriculture at La Sierra and one of my professors name was George Bergdorf. And he's now 90 years old and, and retired and lives on the way to where I was going. So I picked up he and his wife and, and, and they had some, they had some tomatoes and it was the very, very, very end of the season for them. And they, one was this little greenish orange, sort of ripe. And then there was a, a cherry, cherry tomato and, and there was a few cherry tomatoes. And so I, I said, can I, can I take some of these? And so they, they, they um, said, sure. So I took them, the, the tomatoes and the Bergdorf, not, yes, the Bergdorfs, and up to this presentation. And Lynn started his presentation and um, he, he, did, he did a little test he took his refractometer and he um, cut it and juiced it and then had people look. Can you look? And you want to have it, yes, don't aim it at the light, aim it straight and the light will catch it. What do you see? Nine, okay, that's what I saw too. Um, for, for tomatoes, they, there's, the bigger tomatoes are not as sweet as the little tomatoes. The, the cherry tomatoes 
and the sun-dropped golden tomatoes tend to be sweeter and the, the bigger tomatoes. According to Tom's chart, tomatoes are considered excellent at 12, but that's the bigger tomatoes. The, the smaller tomatoes, excellent is higher than that. And so we, um, Lynn had gone to the grocery store and he had purchased the best tomatoes he could get at the grocery store. And he had, there were some pretty expensive tomatoes and they were at five. And then he got another one and, and they were at, um, also at five. So the, then we used the, the Bergdorf semi-ripe tomatoes and they were at eight. And then the cherries were at 10. And this, this cherry is nine. Um, so this is, the, and, and then he had a little tiny orange one that he had got at the grocery store. It wasn't a sun gold drop, but it was, it was kind of oblong. And it was 10. And, and I'm kind of embarrassed here because Tom has, I heard Tom's story and Tom's was more impressive than mine. But I'm going to I'm tell my story and he can say, well, mine's better than yours. <laughs> But um, when he would, he would, they were going doing the demonstration, they, uh, they, were, they, they were getting to these numbers that were higher and they said, oh, that sounds almost as good as the farmer's market. And, and, um, and they, that's, they were getting pretty excited about it. And my, mine, my orange ones were at 17. And um, Tom's, Tom tells the story that his were at 22 which is phenomenal. It's that, that you're almost eating candy. I also had some honeydew. And honeydew, let's see what honeydew is. How did you get the small tomatoes? I'll tell you. That's an excellent point, and I will tell you. Um, honeydew is considered excellent at 14, and, and mine were 17. And my honeydew this summer were the best honeydew that I've ever eaten in my entire life. They were just very, very wonderful. Okay, your question about how to apply salt in the garden. Excellent question. And um, I'll try to answer it and still get back to my point. I'm not very good at that, so help me out. <laughs> um, if you, the best way, salt, when you use sea salt, sea salt, the difference between medicine and poison is often not very much. So it is highly recommended to get a soil analysis, find out if you are high in sodium or low in sodium, and if you're high in sodium, you don't want to use sea salt or any kind of salt. But if your sodium level is below 1.5 CEC, uh, which is, if you've been to Whitmer's class, he talks about uh, cation exchange capacity. If, if you have less than 1.5, then you can add sodium until you get the right percentage. And in this presentation, I'm not prepared to teach you how to do it. I can do it, but I'm not prepared to teach you because it takes quite a bit of background. 
but if you, you want to figure out how much sodium your soil can handle, and then in my case, I put on one pound of powdered sea salt. Let's see if I brought Tom sea salt. I was bring, going to bring Tom sea salt, but I don't know that I have it. This is called Oceans 92. This is Tom's brand. The, there's something called C90, which is the same material. Yes. And this has uh, 92 elements in, from the ocean. And you, in my case, I applied one pound, this much, per thousand square feet. And I, I, there was a number of other elements that were in, that I needed to apply to the garden. And I put them in a bucket and I stirred them all up together. And then I spread it carefully throughout the, the each thousand square feet of my garden. Um, I don't know how big your garden is, but you would do it according to the, the, if you have more than a thousand square feet, you would multiply that times however much more than a thousand square feet. If you have less than a thousand square feet, you would multiply that by a percentage of, like if you have 350 square feet, you would multiply 0.35 times that number. Um, to get your percentage. And, and then later, I used, in Lynn's program, it calls for a soil drench. So you add a certain nutrients once a month to the, in, in flush the water around each plant, either in a hose or bucket or whatever. And, and so, that also, for my, you have to follow the recommendation of your, your soil analysis, but um, you add that in with that soil drench, and then I. And the drench is, is water uh, once a month, and the drench is dissolved salt, where the first one is, is and, and the, powder. And Pardon? The drench, is one to ten, the drench is one ounce in two and a half gallons of water. Or whatever your, your when I was, I was, um, it was one ounce per thousand square feet. And then the, the um, and I also did a, a foliar application. I foliar fed my plants once a week, and I put one ounce in the one gallon. The one gallon would cover the whole thousand feet. I actually do it two or three times to cover the um, thing. So the, I, yes, so that, is that answer your question? Okay, um, where was I, Tom? Melons, okay. Um, the, yeah, the honeydews were, were absolutely amazing. How much of what of the flavor 
was due to the sea salt. I am not sure because I was following a complete program, but I am pretty sure that the sea salt was a major thing. I, I grew this summer, I had a whole spectrum of things. And in my garden, with very few exceptions, there were a couple of exceptions, but in my garden, I was either, the lowest things I had were excellent and up. And um, I'd never had as much good tasting food in my life. And um, the corn, it's here, sweet corn. Where's corn? It may not be on here, but it's 24. And mine was 29. Yes, sir? Um, the, that was his question. You, you apply it when you fertilize before you plant. Uh, at least that's how I did it. You, you, um, it is water soluble. So if it's dissolved, if you, if you put it on right when you plant your plants and then the water will take it down more you can do it beforehand when you do your general fertilization. There, there was a drop, but I cannot quantify it. Um, yes, there was a hand, but I don't know if it was to me or to him. Did you raise your hand, young lady? I guess not. <laughs> okay. That's an excellent question. When there's several kinds of sea salt in the store, one is called Himalayan pink. One is called Redmond's real salt. And there is undoubtedly other kinds. And then there is sea salt that is uh, collected from the ocean. And I'm, this is one of them. This is collected from the ocean, P Himalayan pink as you can figure out from your geography, was not collected from the ocean because the Himalayas go up to 30,000 feet. And so that's somewhere in those mountains, there's a deposit of, from the flood or before, there, the mountains were at the bottom of the ocean and now they're at the top. When the, all the elements come down, in the rivers and lakes and all the tributaries that end up in the ocean. And the sea goes shh, shh, shh. The, the things settle out. And the stuff that is not in perfect sus suspension in God's proposed solution goes to the bottom. And that is what you're getting when you get the mined substance, the mined sea salt from the Himalayas or from Utah or from wherever it's mined, that is what's settled out. So you're not getting the ideal, perfect uh, solution. It's undoubtedly good salt, but it's not as good as the stuff that is collected from ponds where they have at the ocean, the water will come up and they'll, they'll make a pond, it'll evaporate out, and then they collect that. That's what that's what this is.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.